The text from which Pastor John will be preaching this morning is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read and then as Pastor John preaches as well. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Last week we saw that the infinite and overflowing happiness of God is the foundation of Christian hedonism. God is happy because he takes delight in his own glory, especially as he sees it reflected in his Son, Jesus Christ. God is happy because he is sovereign and therefore has the power to overcome every obstacle to his joy. And God's infinite and overflowing happiness is the foundation of Christian hedonism because it overflows in mercy to us. And we concluded at the end that not everybody benefits from that mercy because there is a condition that has to be met in order to be saved and inherit the overflow of God's kindness. And that condition is very simply, delight yourself in the Lord. But many people delight more in riches and revenge and recreation than they do in God, and therefore they are lost and need to be converted. Conversion to Christ is nothing other than becoming a Christian hedonist. I want to try to show this morning. Now, some of you may ask, well, Pastor, if, if your aim is conversion... Christ, why don't you just say, like the Bible does, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Why bring in all this new fandangled terminology about hedonism, which is so liable to misunderstanding anyway? Well, that's a good question, and here's my answer. Try it anyway. Um, I've had some real good opportunities to share with unbelievers and with nominal believers recently, and a conviction has come to a head in my thinking. We live in a superficially Christianized society. And there are thousands of people out there, some in here, who think they do believe in Jesus and are as lost as Judas. In most of my witnessing to unbelievers and nominal believers, the sentence, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, is meaningless. Because the drunks on the street say they do 
unmarried couples sleeping together say they do. Old people who haven't sought any fellowship with Christians or worship for 40 years say they do. And every stripe of world-loving church attender says he does believe on Jesus. My responsibility as a pastor of a church and preacher of the gospel is not just to repeat precious sentences out of the Bible which don't communicate. Instead, I feel a burden to preach that precious truth in a way that might stab a heart broad awake through its unusualness. Taking them off guard that maybe things aren't as comfortable with God as they think. And therefore I say that when a person is converted to Jesus Christ, that person is made into a Christian hedonist. Unless we are born again and become Christian hedonists, we will not see the kingdom of God. That's what I want to try to show from Scripture this morning. Before we can focus in on conversion, the need to be converted to Christ, that is, to become Christian hedonists, there are some great truths about reality that we need to rehearse. And you know these, most of you do, but it's good for us to go back and uh, just talk about the center pillars of our faith and our church. And so I want to give you five great truths that lead to the climax of where I'm, I'm going. And maybe say them in a way a little different than we usually do. The first great truth is this. Every human being needs to own up to the fact that God is his creator to whom he owes heartfelt gratitude in proportion to his dependence and God's beneficence. Every creature needs to recognize he's a creature. God is his creator and we owe gratitude to him. Now, the evidence for that assertion is in you. I don't need to quote any scripture here, though I could. I think there's enough evidence in every person in this room to validate for you in your own experience that assertion. Let me try to show you that. Why is it that the judicial sentiment... Now, let me stop and tell you what I mean by that. I'm going to use that phrase a bunch of times, judicial sentiment. All I mean by that is there is in you a sense of justice so that when you see injustice done... Something in you is triggered and you judge people for it. I think it'll come clear as I use it. Why is it that our judicial sentiment, the judicial sentiment of your own heart, automatically passes judgment on somebody to whom you have done a favor when they snub you and do not show gratitude? Without any willpower or exertion on your part, your heart passes sentence on them guilty. Why? Why is it that if somebody were to run into an ice cold lake in December before it gets frozen over 
and save my drowning child because I was disabled and brought that child to me, handed him to me, and I walked away utterly indifferent to that person, everybody in the universe would say, guilty. Why? Now, there's an answer that I regard as wholly unsatisfactory, and I think your own heart tells you it's unsatisfactory. Namely, it's because my mama spanked me for not saying thank you when I was little. That might be the way a behaviorist would explain it. But a behaviorist goes right ahead and lives according to the law of his heart. We don't let people off the hook that easily. The quickness with which our hearts judge inconsiderate people bears witness to the fact that our true belief is ingrates are guilty. Period. The real reason, don't you agree, for why our hearts respond that way is that we're created in God's image. Your judicial sentiment, which automatically, without any effort on your part, pronounces a person guilty for snubbing someone who has done them a favor, is the voice of God in your heart. Therefore, you know in your heart, you know in your heart that there is a God whom you owe gratitude to. It would be utterly hypocritical, wouldn't it, for God to require of you any less gratitude than you require of your neighbor every day, all day long when you do favors for him. Of course, the scriptures say, oh, give Thanks to the Lord for he is good. It is a duty from scripture, but you don't need the scripture to tell you that. I don't think. And therefore, if all of us in this room would simply own up to the moral demands, which we by nature automatically make on other people, we would recognize that we cannot escape the fact that there is a divine law written on our hearts. And the content of that law is very simply this. A creature owes his creator gratitude in proportion to his dependence and God's beneficence. That's great truth number one. Second truth that I want us to think about is this. Nobody in this room has ever, does now, or in this life ever will. Feel the gratitude to God that we owe him. And we don't need the Bible to tell us that either. We know that we have not rendered to God what we have demanded from our neighbor. And therefore, we judge ourselves guilty. We know that the judicial sentiment of our own heart which holds other people guilty for ingratitude to us and others, also bears vivid witness to us of our ingratitude to God and our guilt for it. Of course, we do pretty successfully, apart from the grace of God, suppress that witness of our hearts. 
And therefore the scripture comes in to wake us up and says in Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. And that refers to every human being apart from the saving grace of our Lord Jesus. When every human being stands before God on the judgment day and gives an account for his life, God will not open the Bible to pass judgment. At least he won't need to. He's just going to ask three questions to you and me. Number one, was it not clear enough from nature and from the witness of your own heart that you were a creature indebted to a creator to give thanks in proportion to your dependence and his beneficence? Yes, there was enough evidence for that. I, I couldn't gainsay that. Second question. Did not the judicial sentiment of your heart always hold other people guilty when they didn't show ingratitude when they didn't show gratitude to you for gifts given? Yes. That's what my heart always did. That's the testimony of my heart. Third question. Has your life been filled with the joy of gratitude in anything like the proportion it should have towards me? No, it hasn't, Lord. This case is closed. And so the third great truth that we must own up to as human beings is this. The wrath of God rests upon us for our ingratitude. Our own judicial sentiment requires that there be a settling of moral accounts in the universe. We don't allow the indignity shown to us to be swept under the rug. They will be settled. Thus dictates our heart. Is it any less true of God? The righteousness of God means that he must uphold the dignity and the moral worth of his own glory. And when we, by our ingratitude, belittle that glory and the worth of God's dignity, God's judicial sentiment says accounts must be settled. And that means judgment. A man is worth more than a cat. And therefore, a man can be sent to jail for defaming another man's character. Or at least he can be sued for $100,000. Nobody has ever been accused of libel against a cat. God is infinitely more valuable than a man. Infinitely more worthy than a man. 
And when we, by our daily sin of ingratitude, belittle the glory and fame and value of Almighty God, there is only one just sentence, and that is damnation, condemnation, exclusion from the glory and presence of the Lord forever. And it is all just because of the infinite glory of God. The wages of sin is eternal death. The most terrifying news in the world is that we have fallen under the condemnation of our creator. Creator, mind you, who made the universe. We have fallen under his condemnation. And his own righteous character demands that for the upholding of the dignity of his glory, he pour out wrath upon ungrateful human beings. But there is a fourth truth. And this truth you will never learn from nature. Brothers and sisters, you've got to tell your neighbors about this truth. This truth has to be preached in churches. This truth has to be carried by missionaries. There is no other way for this truth to be known. And it's this. Gospel truth. God has found a way to remain righteous and not condemn the whole world to hell. Let me put it like this. The wisdom of God has decreed a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God all the while upholding the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That's the best news in all the world. Let me say it again. The wisdom of God from all eternity, has devised and decreed a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God all the while not compromising the righteousness of God. You know what the wisdom of God is? We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews Folly to the Gentiles, but for those who are called Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the what? Say it. Wisdom of God. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God by which God is enabled to let his love deliver men from the wrath of God all the while upholding the righteousness of God. There's no other way it could have been done. You know what the most important two verses in the Bible are? In my judgment, anyway. See if you don't agree. Romans 3, 25 and 26. God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation or expiation or appeasement. By His blood... To be received by faith. This was to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Because in former times he passed over sins 
thus giving the impression that he didn't really care about his glory. But now he demonstrates his own righteousness and that he may in Christ justify those who have faith in him. Here's the biggest problem God ever faced. How can I exonerate sinners who have belittled my glory by their ingratitude and all the while uphold the infinite value of my glory? How did he do it? How can he do it? If he couldn't have done it, every one of us would be in hell. But he did it. And where did he do it? God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might be saved. He died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us ungrateful sinners into the beloved presence of God. If the most terrifying news in the world is that we have fallen under the condemnation of our Creator and that His moral character of holiness demands that He pour out His wrath upon us to preserve the dignity of His glory. If that is the worst and most terrifying news in the world, then there's no question about what the best news in the world is. That the wisdom of God has devised a way whereby the love of God can deliver sinners like you and me from the wrath of God, all the while upholding the righteousness of God. Gospel. Brothers and sisters, that that is not something you need to be ashamed about. We're going to sing that for all eternity. But not everybody. And that brings us to great truth number five. Not everybody is going to sing that truth and be saved and be in heaven with God, celebrating His wisdom, His love, His wrath, and His righteousness. So the fifth great truth is this. There is a condition that you have to meet in order to be saved. Or what I want to try to show this morning is You have to become a Christian hedonist in order to benefit from the death of Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Let's never stop asking that question at Bethlehem. Let's never stop posing that question for our neighbors and our colleagues at work. What must I do to be saved? It's the most important question in the world for a human being. Let's look at what the New Testament answers I have nine answers to that question. Just going to survey them real briefly, and then we're going to try to go to the root of it all. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. John 1, 12. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become children of God. Acts 3, 19. Repent, therefore. And turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Hebrews 5.9. Listen carefully. We don't recite this one as much. Jesus became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
Jesus. Let's go to Jesus. What kind of answers did Jesus give to the question, what must I do to be saved? Matthew 18, 3. Unless you turn and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom. You must be childlike or you won't go to heaven. Mark 8.34, self-denial, willingness to lose your life. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But if, and only if, you are willing to lose your life, will you save it? Matthew 10.37, the condition is that you love Jesus more than you love mother or father, son or daughter. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And Paul said the same thing. You remember over in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, there is now laid up for me a crown of righteousness on that day. And not only for me, but for all who love his appearing. Who love the appearing of Jesus That's the people who will be counted righteous on the judgment day. And then finally, Luke 14, 33. You have to be free from the love of your possessions. He said, whoever does not renounce all that he has can't be my disciple. Jesus is uh, straightforward. Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are some of the conditions that the New Testament lays down for salvation. Believe him. Receive him. Obey him. And love him more than you love family, possessions, and your own life. That's what it means to be converted to Christ, brothers and sisters. It ain't small. It ain't cheap. That is conversion, and that alone is the way everlasting. What holds those conditions together? What unites them? What's at the root? What impels a person to meet all of those conditions? And that brings us to the text that Tom read. If you want to look at it, Matthew 13, 44. a little parable, just a verse, but this verse is uh, maybe one of the best crystallizings of Christian hedonism in the New Testament. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered it up, and in his joy... He sold everything he had to buy that field. Why did he sell everything he had? Because he's so happy. Because that treasure is a treasure chest of joy, holy joy, and it is nothing less than Jesus Christ. That's conversion, folks. Conversion in one verse is described as this, a discovery that Jesus Christ is a treasure worth more than anything so that it is scarcely a sacrifice at all to sell everything you've got to have Jesus. The new birth 
is being converted so that Christ becomes a treasure chest of holy joy for you. And if he isn't, then you have no reason to think that you are his. We are born again, we are converted when Christ becomes a treasure in whom we take so much delight that trusting him, obeying him, and turning from everything that belittles him is our normal way of life. Now, someone may say against Christian hedonism, I think it's possible to make a decision for Jesus without the incentive of joy. I doubt that real much. But I'm not going to base my case on that fact this morning. The issue this morning is not, can you make a decision for Jesus Christ without the incentive of joy? The issue is, should you? The issue is, would it do you any good if you could? Is there any evidence in Scripture that God will accept a person who comes to him out of any other motive than the joy to be had in him. If you know of any, write it on a card and send it to me, and I'll talk about it in a sermon. Someone will say, our aim in life ought to be to please God, not to please ourselves, right? But brothers and sisters, how do you please God? What pleases God? Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who would come to God must believe that he exists and that he is what? The rewarder of those who seek him. You cannot please God unless you come to him for reward. I'll say it again. You cannot please God unless you come to Him for reward. Namely, Himself. Because He's a treasure chest of holy joy. Take Peter, for example. Now, Peter is a good stoic at the beginning. And Peter focused attention on his sacrifice and his self-denial. How did Jesus respond to Peter when Peter said, Lo, we've left everything to follow you. We have really, we've really denied ourselves. Jesus looked right into Peter's eye and saw pride twinkling. He saw the root of pride in his life. Oh, we've made the heroic decision to sacrifice for Jesus. And how did Jesus nip that pride in the bud? What did Jesus say? He made him a Christian hedonist. He said, Peter, nobody has left anything which will not be repaid a hundredfold in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Quit talking about that self-denial. Look at the treasure. Is it really a sacrifice to give up everything for me? Peter, if you come to me 
and think that I am not more valuable than everything you've given up. You don't come to me. You are still enslaved to your old self-sufficiency, Peter. You haven't become like a little child basking in the beneficence of his heavenly father. It's just pride that wants to be anything more than a little baby branch sucking, sucking, sucking on the vine. Righteousness, peace, and joy. It is pride, brothers and sisters, that wants to send sap back into the vine. The only people God will receive are those who come to get Reward in him the treasure chest of holy joy, which he is. And that's gospel. That's good news to those who don't have anything to give. Let's sum it up. Big truth number one, God is our creator. We owe him gratitude. Intense, deep, and consistent as befits our dependence in his beneficence. Big truth number two. Nobody in this room has ever, does now, or ever will in this life give him that kind of gratitude. Big truth number three. We are under the just condemnation of almighty God. Big, big, big truth number four is that the wisdom of God from all eternity devised a way that the love of God might deliver sinners from the wrath of God all the while upholding the righteousness of God and he did it in only one possible way. He slew his son in my place. And big truth number five, brothers and sisters, is that nobody benefits from that unless they become a Christian hedonist. Or, to put it another way, unless you are converted to Christ, or to put it another way, unless Christ becomes for you a treasure chest of holy joy. Every biblical invitation of the gospel is rooted in the promise of lavish treasure. Christ himself is ample recompense of everything we could give up for Him. The invitation of the gospel is unmistakably and unabashedly hedonistic. And it goes like this from the prophet Isaiah. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you labor for that which is not bread? Why do you spend for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good. Come to me and delight yourselves in abundance. Hearken, come to me here that you might live. Why would you die, says the Lord? Let us pray. It can't be but that everybody in this room has business to do with God. Maybe the business is to help you deal with your feelings towards the pastor. 
Maybe your business is that you're blind to the beauty of Jesus. Maybe your business is that you've contradicted the beauty by not telling that neighbor. I'm going to sit down for one minute while you do business with God in your heart. Shall we stand for a closing prayer? Father in heaven, I unite my voice with all your people right now to pray for those here who are not converted. And our prayer for them, O Lord, is that if they have not come to feel and see you as a treasure chest of holy joy, that this very day and all through the week you might frustrate every earthly pleasure they pursue until they come, O Lord, to stumble upon that treasure in the middle of the field and out of joy run to sell everything they have for you. And you alone, to whom belong glory, majesty, dominion, and, O oh Lord, all the gratitude of our hearts. And all the people said, Amen.